Let's pray before we hear the word of God this morning. Lord, this morning open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds to hear wisdom from your word. I thank you that it doesn't just tickle our ears, but it sinks in, affects our spirit, enables us to act instead of react in a world that doesn't acknowledge you. Lord, let us be a light because it's not just the word we know, it's the God who is the word that we know. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, who, who enjoyed Christmas? Who's looking forward to next year already? Ooh, obviously it was a really good Christmas then. Sometimes after Christmas you sort of hope that that was the last one. But no? Okay. Glad to hear it. So at Christmas, we finished a series called The Road to Christmas, which was logical because we'd got to Christmas. And I was thinking what, what, to, what to preach on next. And when I, I read the Christmas story, I realised that there's a road after Christmas. It's one we don't often look at, one we don't even really give much consideration to because we're so excited about the event of Christmas what we're celebrating, what we're rejoicing in, the importance of what actually started the day Jesus was born. Now, I don't want to puncture your balloon or anything, but Jesus actually wasn't born on the 25th of December. He wasn't actually even born in naught AD. In fact, Jesus was probably born in about 6 BC because some very eager mathematician managed to stuff up the dates when he invented our new calendar. And because we know that the uh, shepherds were out in the fields tending their flocks, uh, it, it tends to indicate, especially in the Middle East, that it was more likely to be around about March or April because at this time of year it's really, really cold and they kept them indoors. But that's really got nothing to do with it. Um, except that Sometimes these things are important to realise that although our holiday tends to glorify certain things about Christmas, we need to realise that there was a harsh reality that underlies the Christmas story. I mean, it starts here. Luke chapter 2 verse 6 says, And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. Interesting reference there. It implies there was more than one child that Mary had, and possibly of both genders. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. So there was obviously no, what's that store? Babies are us, um, baby bunting, any of those stores around. And who knows that if you go into Kmart, Target, if you go up there and say, excuse me, can you tell me where the strips of cloths are for babies? They look at you like, should I call security? Because they don't have these things. And we'll come to why in a moment. But that was the beginning. Jesus was born in a manger and his parents were there. And everything after that, you notice that the scriptures have this buzz about them. Something exciting has happened. There's an anticipation about great things. Starting, and it starts, it starts, strangely enough, in heaven. The first thing that happens is angels 
Luke chapter 2 verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared among them. This is the shepherds. And the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Saviour, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. So the angels are excited, so excited that one of them snuck out the back door of heaven and has nipped down to earth just to tell the shepherds. But he left the door open because soon he was followed by a lot of others who sort of got upset with him. Like, you're hogging the limelight, we're coming too. And they, they praised God in a great cloud above these shepherds who were, of course, a bit weak-kneed and trembling at all of this. And so in verse 15, the humblest people of all these shepherds, after seeing this heavenly display, decide, well, this sounds important. Perhaps we should go and see for ourselves. And so when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened that the Lord has told us about. See, they knew about it too. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in a manger. And after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angels had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. So here we, the word about Jesus is already spreading. He's not even a day old yet. But soon, who knows, the reality of having babies sets in pretty quickly. Especially these days. I mean, when we had kids, uh, Vicky stayed in hospital, I think, three days. So we got used to having this small thing in our house, well, in the hospital room. Um, but these days, you're lucky to get 24 hours in a hospital. They boot you out. So you just go and see how you go. And so Joseph and Mary didn't even have a hospital. They just had to change the straw in the food trough every so often and keep the horses away, or the cows or the sheep or whoever was eating from the, the trough. So after eight days, they take Jesus to the temple. Very important ceremony. The snip. Actually, not that snip, just the, the other one. Um, and we, that must have gone well because that's all that's said about it. So there was obviously no tears, no hemorrhaging, nothing particularly out of the ordinary. And then... They take him to the temple again, and we know that that was 40 days later because it was A, for a purification ritual, which was actually for Mary, not for, for uh, Jesus, and they were going to dedicate him to God. And we, we hear about that in Luke 2.23, where it says, The law of the Lord says if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So they've gone to the temple. Now, interestingly, they go to the temple and now there's a bit of a kerfuffle. Something exciting happens because it says here, at that time there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. Is it okay that I'm reading all these scriptures? Is this, is this okay? Because this is the word of God. It's fairly important. I didn't make this stuff up. He was righteous and devout and eagerly awaiting, waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you've promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. 
He is your light, a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Never mind the fact that some strange guy comes up and snatches their baby out of their arms in the middle of the temple. I mean, Nathan, how would you react if some guy you didn't know suddenly grabbed your baby, held him up in the air, whoa, and starts saying amazing things about him? Now, the amazing things might be great, but you know, you'd be sitting there thinking, what does occupational health and safety have to say about this? Is the temple's public liability insurance up to date? And should I call security? But they didn't. There probably wasn't any. So this was, this was really good. Uh, Simeon then blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Sort of uplifting, but sort of, you, know, you sort of worry about what your baby was going to go through when he grew up, when you hear that sort of thing. But if you've got faith in God, and you believe that God has your child's destiny in his hand, you can see that God is going to do amazing things. And I believe that that sort of opportunity is available to us and to all our children if we're prepared to actually take them to God and to let God organize their life. Now, if that wasn't enough, verse 36, Anna, a prophet, was there also. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died after they'd been married for only seven years, and she lived as a widow to the age of 84. Are you 84 yet, Granny? So she's about Granny's age, probably as talkative and rebellious as Granny is as well. Um, and she never left the temple but stayed there day and night worshipping God with fasting and prayer. Sounds just like Granny. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everybody who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. And when Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. Now, I don't know about you, but after all this, as parents, I'd, my head would be whirling. You know, we've just given birth to the Messiah, and wow, things are, he's only 40 days old. And things are happening already. It is ex who's excited? I'm excited. This is, you know, this is looking good. You know, this, this is going to be smooth sailing. Teenage years, we don't know about. But, you know, he, he's the prophecies about him, the excitement about what he's going to do to change this planet is already there. But guess what? They're poor. We can t well, one more great thing happens. Is it, it actually happens a while later. Strange, we, our, our Christmas cards don't show this, but some wise men turned up. And we know they turned up Round about 18 months to two years after he was born. Not in the manger. Because it actually says, and I'll read it in a minute, that, that they turned up to their house. I don't think they bought the, uh, the stable and decided to make it into a house. That They'd already moved into a house. And so Matthew chapter 2 verse 9 says, After this interview, the wise men went their way. Now the interview they had was with King Herod, who was interested in what they were doing. Now, a lot of our cards have three wise men on them. But there is actually no evidence there are only three. In fact, this 
passage of Scripture gives us evidence there were probably a lot more. Three wise men wandering through Israel would not have excited the interest of King Herod. He was used to weird people wandering through his kingdom. The only reason that King Herod would have been interested by wise men coming into Israel would have been if they were a sizable number. In fact, it was probably a small army, possibly up to 100, 150 people, who had come from a foreign land and entered his borders um, in full regalia. It was like he was sort of thinking, now, are you guys coming in peace or is this the beginning of an invasion force? He wanted to actually find out who these strange people were with weapons and, and camels and, and sort of looking very regal had suddenly appeared on the borders of his little province. So there were more than three. And they were enough numbers and they looked threatening enough for Herod to interview them. Like, border patrol, excuse me, while you're here, can I search your bags? Put out your tongue, we'll put this into the scanner, see what you're carrying, all that sort of thing. And he heard that they were going to see this child. And so he sent them on their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house, not the house, and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we've got this, this great picture. They've lived a bit poorly, and suddenly all these wise men turn up, and it's a bit like, having a knock on your door saying, that lottery ticket you've got, what are the numbers? You've won the jackpot. Because that's what it's like. They didn't just bring, you know, a gold penny and, a, and, a, and one of those Dior bottles of frankincense or whatever they are. They brought chests of gold, frankincense and myrrh. He was wealthy overnight. God blessed him to make him incredibly wealthy before he was even two years old. This sounds really good. You'd be happy about that, wouldn't you? Oh, I'd be stoked. You know, you struggle along for a bit, two years old, suddenly, bingo. But, who knows, there's always a but. And if it's yours, you need to get it out of the way. We know that they weren't well off at the time of Jesus' birth because it, we, we talked in Luke 2.7 about how she'd wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. Just as a side point here it's very unlikely strangely enough that it was a wooden barn and also very unlikely that Jesus occupation or Joseph's occupation rather was carpenter he was far more likely to actually have been a stonemason heresy if, you, if you've ever been to Bethlehem which I haven't but Pastor Bruce has and he told me about it and he's fairly reliable there are no trees they keep their sheep in caves. It's fairly likely that Jesus was born in a cave and that the manger for the animal feed was a hollow in the rock scooped out or, or chipped out by people to make a, a food trough. The reason that Joseph was thought to be a carpenter was when the, they translated the Bible for the King James Version. It was, of course, done by Europeans in Europe. And the, the Hebrew word is actually craftsman. It's a fairly generalized word. And, of course, they looked around and thought, well, the craftsmen we have here are mostly carpenters because there's lots of trees. And so they translated it as carpenter. But it's really craftsman. And if we look at this situation, he was probably a stonemason. 
So just to burst another little bubble we have about these things. Um, so we know they were, they were poor because there was no lodging, which means they couldn't afford a hotel. No, notice nobody with money ever gets kicked out of a hotel. If you've got, if you've got the dosh, doesn't matter whether they're full or not, they'll, they'll find you something. It's usually not the laundry room either. It's usually something pretty swanky. So they didn't have any money. Uh, they offered a sacrifice in Luke 2.24 of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. If you read the law of, of Moses, th the sacrifice required ranged from something if you were really rich to something if you were really, really poor. Two turtle doves rates one step above abject poverty. So we know that they weren't rich. That they had enough to get two turtle doves. That was about it. So they, they were struggling. So they must, things must have improved a bit because they got a house. And what that actually means, I really don't know. But the, the wise men came to their house. And then suddenly they drop off all this gold, frankincense and myrrh. And it's like, you know, houses win the, the lottery. And so you think... This is really good going. Except, what happens with this unexpected blessing? No sooner have the wise men left than an angel appears to Joseph and says, uh, King Herod is a bit suspicious about you lot. He wants to kill Jesus. Run away. So they've just got all this wealth. They've just settled. They're looking. They've just rung the real estate agent to get a, a bigger house. And this angel says, no, look. Jesus' life is in danger, scarper. So they run, leave everything they've got, and flee to Egypt. Not only that, Herod gets so ticked that they've disappeared that he slaughters every boy, child, two years and under in, in the region. So they leave destitute, and they also leave behind a massacre, which is pretty horrible. And so... and and. We'll read about it. Matthew 2, verse 13. It says, After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. It's a pretty horrible dream to have. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. That's what wise men do, isn't it? He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Not a good way to start your life as the Messiah. Things appear to be going well. God's blessing you. But in conjunction with that, who knows, life isn't all good all the time. There are blessings in your life, but you're also having struggles in other areas of your life. Jesus had exactly the same thing happening to him. And he was too young to even know about it. So after a while, Matthew 2, 21, it says, Joseph got up, returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his, and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, that person, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned again in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth which fulfilled what the prophet had said he would be called a Nazarene. So even when they got back, they were still afraid that Herod's son was going to be after Jesus. So they couldn't move back to Bethlehem because it would have looked suspicious because Jesus would have been the only boy his age in the village because all the others had been murdered. 
So they had to move to Nazareth where he would have fitted in better. So there are three things we can take out of this story. and Because it, it's a road. There was a, there was a journey in a very real sense that happened after Jesus' birth, which was almost as important, well, in fact, it was more important than the road before. The road to Christmas was about signs and portents that something great was happening. But the road after Christmas was the testing of what was happening. God had come incarnate onto this earth in the form of a baby. And we talked at Christmas Eve about how God does things that appear messy and, and well, not how we would, we'd have, we'd have brought Jesus down like the Terminator as a fully grown sort of super being. We won't have anybody taking any crap from this guy. Or the other way around. He wasn't going to take any from anybody else. That's what I meant. But it was a baby. And who knows that that's what babies specialize in early on. They're not taking it, they're giving it. And so God obviously is trying to teach us something about ourselves in the life of Jesus, even when he was a child. The first thing is that good things are happening even when things look bad. Who's found that about life? That we have a choice in life. Good things and bad things happen in life. We have a choice. Which one do we focus on? If we focus on the bad things, guess what? You have a bad life. If you focus on the good things, you actually have a good life. You feel good. You tell people about the good things. People are envious of you because you appear to have the, the life that they haven't got. Whereas in reality, all it is is that you're focused on the good things and they're focused on the bad things. Most people's lives, if you look at them, contain a balance of exciting and positive things and negative, dull, boring or positively horrible things. What we focus on determines what our life is like. The second thing we've got to realise is you can't do it on your own. Jesus needed his parents. He was too young. Even though he was the son of God, he couldn't walk yet. At least, probably after two he could. But, you know, when he was taken to the temple, he, he, was, he was wrapped in strips of cloth. He could probably hardly move. So he had to rely on his parents as a baby. Funnily enough, who knows that we all start off as Christians, as babies? Oh, uh, love the question, a tourist who went to an, an old town in Germany and asked one of the, the villagers there, he said, how many great men have been born in this village? And the guy said, none, we only have babies. <laughs> it's the same thing in the kingdom of God. You know, I, I can still remember, I mean, when I, I became a Christian, I had a good job, I had a good wife, I had a good life, good kids. Well, I too young really to know which way they were going to go. Um, but they turned out all right. And I was going to this church and I went for probably a couple of months and I'd stand there and I'd think, I like this, this idea about God. I like what I'm hearing. God seems a really neat sort of person. And I kept hearing this, this idea that I should actually give my life and let God be in control. And being a guy, I sort of thought, well, okay, yeah, perhaps a little bit. I'll, I'll, listen, I'll, I'll decide who's in control, thank you very much. Until one day I, I, I thought, no, look, 
I've seen things, I've experienced things, I'm getting to know God to the point where I, I'm just going to let it go and I'm going to accept Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. And I put my hand up and I prayed a prayer and invited Jesus into my life and afterwards thought, Jesus got a pretty good deal out of this. <laughs> I'm not some poor destitute person in need of salvation. I, I've made a good decision here and I think Jesus should be happy he's got me. <laughs> the things we think sometimes. I soon realised that Jesus didn't need me. Jesus was, his kingdom carried on quite happily without me. And that none of my skills, see I, I'd worked as a research scientist. I knew how to say deoxyribonucleic acid without stumbling. I, I can still do that. I knew how to explain the Krebs cycle. Not the Krebs cycle, the Krebs cycle. I knew what gluconeogenesis was. You know, I'd learned stuff that confused people. Didn't make me particularly clever, but I could confuse people with it. And so I thought, you know, I have, I have skills, I have learning. So God, God is obviously going to use that. So he made me a pastor where I haven't used any science whatsoever for the last 17 years. Just to let me know that if I did what he said, I'd be all right. But if I thought I was the, the bee's knees, then I was going to have a pretty hefty fall. You can't do it on your own and you need God to actually do things and you need his church to help you mature. As a Christian, the church is your parent. Now, not the organisation of the church. It's people. There are people in this church at all different levels of maturity and experience in their Christian walk. You need to find someone who's perhaps got that little bit, you know, the person who walked in the door five minutes ahead of you has just that little bit more experience with God. Follow them. Or if you... If, you discuss, if there's no difference, get together with them and find somebody who is. Make relationships with people. Find out all you can about knowing God. Ask people. Don't pretend to know stuff you don't. One of the worst things I found was that people would say, do you, do you understand what that means? You, you, you're baptised in the Holy Spirit? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. In, inside going, what the heck are you talking about? I've got no idea what you're saying. And I learnt that it was far better for me to go on the outside, oh, I have no idea what you're saying, than to pretend you knew stuff. My first question about tithing was, how, how experienced a Christian do you have to be before you're allowed to tithe? I mean, is, is there a certain, certain level of spiritual um, gravitas that you have to have before you can actually tithe? Because I saw people doing it and I thought, well, I can't afford that. Something, God must do something to people to make them be able to afford to give. And my pa pastor said, no, you should be doing it now. I was like, no, you don't understand. I can't afford to tithe. He said, have you tried it? I said, no, because it's silly. I mean, I've worked it out. If I tithe, we'll go bankrupt. He said, try it and see. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. He said, I understand. Try it and see. I said, but, but, but. he said, try it. Speak to the hand. Try it. And see, he showed me Malachi. It says, this is the only thing you can test God in. But he says, test me in this. Try it and see. So I tried it and I didn't go bankrupt. In fact, I was really upset. 
Not that I hadn't gone bankrupt, but what happened was that I was better off. My mathematical ability, which those of you who know me isn't, know, isn't great, told me that I should be worse off tithing because money was going out but I was losing. But God didn't work it that way. I learned about speaking in tongues because Vicky said, you know, we're in one of those weird churches and they speak in tongues. I said, get out of here. I haven't heard any of that. She said, you go and listen. People speak in tongues in this church. I said, no. So I went and listened. And they did. I thought, I'm in a cult. <laughs> They're all weirdos. And I thought, well, perhaps I can be a weirdo. And so we, we, we learn about the gifts of the Spirit. But we had to admit we didn't know. We had to humble it. We had to go to people in the church and say, how do you do this? And we got various, you know, one of the famous ones is a city called Harubbable in the Old Testament. And apparently if you say Harubbable over and over again often enough, you get to speak in tongues. Harubbable, That one didn't work for me, but there were other things. Um, but the church is here to help us mature and grow as Christians. We need to use the church. That Jesus came to establish the church. The church is not an add-on. It's not a bolt-on. To your Christian faith. Now I believe in God. Church, yeah, do I need that option? It's an expensive option, it takes time, they're asking for money, they're probably going to ask me to be involved. It's like I'm busy. If we think of church that way, our life is going to fail. Because Jesus came and established his church so that life would flow out of it. What we do here on Sundays, what we do in our connect groups, what we do in our prayer meetings, out of that flows the issues of life. We should be praying about our work, not being at work wondering whether we can come to church. We should be praying about our family, not putting our family above church and say, well, no, we've always had a tight-knit family and we always meet for breakfast on Sunday morning and church gets in the way. No, no you need to be coming to church, praying for your family and believing they'll be in here so you can go to breakfast afterwards. Or lunch, Yes. Or late, late brunch. No, it'll be lunch by the time I've finished. I've only got an hour or two to go yet. So, oh, no, one more point. The third point. So the first point, good things are happening, even when things look bad. The second thing is we've got support. We've got a church here. Jesus Christ established that church for our growth and prosperity. We need to be fully engaged in our church. The third thing is keep your eyes fixed on what God has promised. Do you know what got Mary through all of these things? We can see it in Luke 2.19. It says, But Mary kept all of these things in her heart and thought about them often. She knew who Jesus was. She knew what the promises of God were about him. But she could see what was happening all around her. And sometimes it didn't fit. Has anybody ever noticed that? Sometimes what God has promised doesn't fit with what you can see. I'll admit, it happens to me. And yet Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. Keep your eyes fixed on the promises of God for your life. Sometimes it is tough. 
Sometimes our eyes are diverted to other things. Sometimes the world looks a lot more fun. Sometimes it's tempting. I can still remember Vicky saying to our kids when the topic of drugs came up last week, I mean uh, years ago, and she said, the reason that we don't want you to try drugs is not because they're horrible and terrible, but you might like them. People don't take drugs because they're horrible. People don't do things or are tempted by things that aren't pleasurable. People get enjoyment out of these things and it destroys their lives. People don't go and do things that are horribly painful and, and abusive just because, well there are some people, but in general, people aren't about pain and, and suffering, especially in their own lives. And they don't try things that are really painful and hurtful because they try things that are pleasurable. They try things that take their mind off their problems. They try to escape pain by going somewhere which is painless. And the thing is that that can destroy us if we take our eyes off what God has promised. See, one thing God hasn't promised is a painless life. Now James says, count it all joy when trials and tribulations come your way. And then he twists the knife by saying, because everybody else is going through the same stuff, so you might as well all enjoy it together. Because we are created as overcomers. You know, we are more than conquerors. We have overcome because Christ has fought the battle for us. But when you, there's got to be something to overcome. Overcoming actually comes by effort. It's not given to you. You can't hand overcoming to people on a plate. Here you are, you've overcome everything. Don't you feel good? Oh, yeah, thanks. No. What you have to say is, go, see that problem there? Go and attack it. And at the end of it all, Brendan comes to me, bedraggled, his hair messed up, dirty, scratched, disheveled, exhausted. I overcame it. I did it. I was victorious. Because he had to work to do it. The feeling he's got inside of, of overwhelming victory is far greater than any of the scratches or bruises or must hair he might have got achieving it because he's internally and probably externally as well under those scratches are rippling muscles because he's strengthened himself in the fight there's a keener mind because he's had to think differently to overcome the struggles it changes us being an overcomer isn't being a spectator it's actually being involved we need to be involved in God's plan God has a plan for everybody and 2015 is this next year. If we're, got, if we're going to get involved in... There is no better time to get involved in the plan of God than right now. There are three days, two days, three days to go before the end of the year. That's not a lot of planning time. Some of us have got our schedules planned out already. Who here is a student? Anybody going to university or college or school? Who knows that next year they've got your life planned for you. The course is already organised. The timetable is organised. You're going to get pieces of paper that says, Kyle, turn up now at that time, at that place, and you study hard. Isn't that right? <laughs> and you, you are going to study hard. Yeah. 
I like the fervor in there. And we need to actually take God into those situations. We need to make sure that we've put Him first. Because that's, that's how we, we get hold of His plans. You know, Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. Can you stand with me, please? I want to open up the altar this morning to your plans for 2015. There's a saying that if you, if you have plans that don't scare you a bit, then you need to think bigger. If you don't have plans that at this very moment you don't have the wherewithal to fulfill, then you need to change those plans. If you don't have a plan that is going to stretch you, you're going to end up at Christmas 2015 exactly the same as you were at Christmas 2014. But to do that takes courage. It takes overcoming fear because change is always uncomfortable. And I believe that's the first point of call to come into God's presence and to actually take on board God's courage, to take on board God's wisdom, God's compassion, God's love into our life. Whatever plans you have for 2015, if you want a touch of God on them, I want you to just fill this altar right now. I want you to come forward and let God be first in your life. If, you, if you've got plans that aren't big enough, come out now. Believe God that He's going to challenge you to think bigger. If you've got plans that scare you, come out and be assured that the Holy Spirit is going to give you confidence to carry out those things. If you don't know what your plans are, but you, you know that you want to do something different, but you've got no idea what it is, you need to come believing that God's going to give you some direction and purpose for next year. And above all, if you're here, you have plans, but you haven't you haven't incorporated God into those plans at all. It's time to invite God into your life. It's time to say, okay, I've ignored God all my life, but today I am actually going to invite Him into my heart and do what I did years ago and say, okay, I'm not as good as I thought, Lord. I actually need You to come into my life. If you want to do that this morning, I just encourage you to come out, join these people here, or if you are here, to pray a prayer to invite Jesus into your life. Because, you see, that's the secret. We're all out here. And the only prayer we actually need to pray is to invite Jesus into our lives, into our plans. Whether you've been a Christian 20 years or whether you're saying right now, I just want to be a Christian. I want to follow God. Actually, all we need 
is God's presence. So I want you to pray after me, everybody here up on this altar. Dear Lord Jesus, I put my life in your hands. Any other life with any other God, I reject right now. I step on the devil's head. I lift up Jesus Christ as my Savior and as the Lord of my life. My plans, my purposes, my dreams and visions are in your hands, Lord. I give up my life to yours. From this moment on, my plans and my dreams are yours. Lord, I thank you that you care enough about me to make my life a priority in the kingdom of heaven. I am humbled beyond belief with your love and your compassion for me. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I'd ask one thing, if you could all, just in a moment, make your way back to your seats. But if you were a person this morning who for the first time prayed a prayer to invite Jesus into your life, could I ask that you come and speak to me after the service because I want to be able to give you some material to follow up with, something to help you with. So you may all take your seats. and Megan don't know why but when I saw you up there and we were praying I felt God just sort of hover over you two and to say that this is actually for you a year of overcoming it's actually a year where problems are actually going to confront you front and centre they're not going to slide in from the side or they're not going to be little road bumps you are going to be faced with problems but God has brought you to a place where you're actually going to be able to look at those problems and laugh at them. They're going to be, and it's a mindset, it's a question, you have a choice. You can look at that problem and say, this is going to kill us. Or you can look at the problem and say, ha, that's not a problem. And if you can accept what God has put into you two and do that, then that problem will go away. But God says, do not succumb to the idea that you can't overcome the problems because they will kill you. If you, if you recognize and you're prepared to speak out that you are overcomers, those problems will vanish before you even know that you're in a fight. Take it to them. It's a long road and it's uphill. But let me tell you, the view from the top is amazing. You think you're doing all right. 
you think things are moving along? I think you've got to be comfortable. I think 2015 is going to be a year of challenges to grow you, to push you to places that you have dreamed of going but haven't actually thought you can. And I believe God is going to force the issue. He's going to present you with challenges, not unpleasant ones. In fact, that's the problem. You're going to be presented with options which are favorable, no matter which you choose. But God is going to say, the consequence of choosing the one that I've chosen for you versus the other one is going to be massive. And it's having the clarity of vision to see which one that is that God is going to challenge you with. Because you're going to need that clarity of vision to take you to the next level. He's going to put those songs in your heart, into your hand. I don't know what that means really, but I can't wait to see how that turns out. Hey, God has revealed to me that you are a handsome bunch of people. And that next year is yours for the taking, whether you believe you're handsome or not. But God has placed the power in every single one of us to take a stand call ourselves victorious in what we do before it's even started but it takes courage it takes work to say you're victorious after the battle it takes fear of looking stupid to say you're victorious before the battle's begun but that's what God calls us to do we need to stand there and say I have won before you've even fought because if you know you've won before you've fought the battle is just a formality God bless you.